2015 of going through the story. We started in 2015 by looking at David in chapter 12 and his sin. His sin was awful. The consequences were enormous. He was an adulterer, a deceiver, and a murderer. But he really experienced true repentance, and God blessed him and allowed him to go through a time of repentance, and he finished well. Most of the psalms that he wrote took place after his uh, awful time of sin and separation from God. Next week, we looked at Solomon. Solomon defined the greatness of Israel, his reign early on. In fact, in the middle of Solomon's reign, Israel was as great as they've ever been. But yet, Solomon had a divided heart. He had one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And the Lord finally said, enough is enough. And and that started kind of a a domino series of, of events that took place that led to division within Israel. And so Israel was no longer a united kingdom, but a divided kingdom, north and south, Israel and Judah. And and they were on a a train that was going in the wrong direction. God sent messengers along the way. We called them prophets. There's 16 prophets in the Bible that have actual written works, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Um, The final 12 are known as the minor prophets, not because their, their word isn't important, not because we don't need to pay attention to it, but it's just not that long. I mean, Isaiah's got like 60-plus chapters, Jeremiah 50-plus chapters. Some of the minor prophets have one chapter or two chapters, but this fall we're going to look at each of the minor chapters, week after week, minor prophets, week after week after week, and discover what they had to say. You will be amazed at some of what you will read in the minor prophets. I I can't wait for that series. We're very excited. Week after that, we looked at the fall of the kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah in 586 to the Babylonians. You don't really need to know those dates. You don't really even need to know Assyria and Babylon. But here's what's important. God's people were forced to leave the promised land, their homeland. They were carried off into exile, and they now found themselves, Peter uses the term, aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And that's exactly what God's people were for a period of quite some time. Last week, we looked at one of the heroes of the faith during that period of the exile. His name was Daniel. And how Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they lived a no-compromise kind of life. They said there is one way, and whatever happens, we're living strong for the Lord. If we die, we die. If you're not happy with us, you're not happy with us. But we are living strong for the Lord. Next week, we're going to study another hero of the faith during that period of exile. Her name is Esther, Queen Esther. But today, we're tackling two chapters in the story, chapters 19 and 21, and both deal with the return home from exile. The two key characters that we're going to look at today are guys by the name of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm going to get to them in just a minute. But understanding the exile, you have to understand this is a 106-year period of returning. When I think returning from exile, I think load up the U-Haul, have a final meal, hit the road, and we're there in a week, and life is awesome. That's not how it played out here. There were actually three different groups that led uh, the the return home from exile. And I want to give you a snapshot of each of the three groups. I want to give you two Bible pictures, one of Nehemiah, one of Ezra. And then I want to see, what's this have to do with us in 2015? 
See, I think one of the dangers studying something that took place in 500 B.C., 450 B.C. is saying, that's great, that's history, what's that do with my life today? I think there's some real practical lessons that we can take from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah about how we live as Christ followers today. So with that, let's dive in. Three groups lead the return home from exile, and the first group is led in 538 B.C. by a guy that's got a really cool name. His name is Zerubbabel. And when I say really cool, I don't mean really cool. I mean, aren't you glad you didn't name your kid Zerubbabel? But Zerubbabel led this first group home, and the big focus point in 538 B.C. is we need to rebuild the temple. The temple was destroyed by the evil King Nebuchadnezzar. 586 B.C., Jerusalem's in ruins, the temple is no more. And a series of events takes place, and Babylon is no longer the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Persia has now really grabbed that title. Their king is a guy by the name of Cyrus. If you've studied history at all, you've probably studied Cyrus, king of Persia. And God used a Persian king who had really very little connection to the Hebrew faith whatsoever to allow the temple to be rebuilt. Now, last week we studied Daniel, and I think Daniel played a huge role in this, even though Ezra and Nehemiah don't tell us that. See, Daniel was a Hebrew who lived strong for the Lord and and, and rose to prominence under the Babylonians, but also under the Persians. Daniel in the lion's den, remember that from last week? That was under Persian king Darius, or Darius, however you want to pronounce it. Many scholars believe that Darius, Darius, is actually Cyrus. I don't want to get into all of that today. I don't want to get lost in those details. But understand, God is at work all throughout his scripture, sometimes in ways that it's really hard to figure out. But something really awful, like an exile, allowed for a Persian king of greatness to allow God's people to go home and to begin rebuilding the temple. Group 1, 538 B.C., under Zerubbabel. Group 2 took place uh, in 458 B.C., and it was led by Ezra, Ezra the priest, Ezra the scribe. And it's during this time that the big idea was to rebuild the faith community. Now, some people say Ezra the priest, some people say Ezra the scribe. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah say both. He was both a scribe and a priest. But he was a spiritual leader, maybe the spiritual leader of the day. And his big thing is we need to rebuild the faith community. Don't lose sight of the fact that the reason God's people were physically destroyed is because they had already experienced centuries of spiritual decline. Because of the spiritual decline, the Lord finally just washed his hands and said, I'm all done. 2 Chronicles 36 says there was no longer any remedy. There was no remedy any longer. And Ezra leads the second group home, and the big idea is let's rebuild the faith community. Group number three, this is probably the most famous, led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a really cool job. He was cupbearer. This is what he did. He hung out with the king all the time, and anytime the king got ready to drink wine, they would pour it in Nehemiah's glass first, and he would drink the wine. And if he didn't die, then the king could drink the wine. Now, you're probably thinking, how's that a great job? It's one of the most important roles in in, in all of the kingdom. If you have someone that's cupbearer that's on the take, big, big trouble. In fact, there were kings that died because the cupbearer betrayed him. 
and allowed him to, to uh, be susceptible to an assassination plot. So Nehemiah finds himself in an ideal situation, and we're going to see in just a moment how, how Nehemiah used this great position of prominence, cupbearer, to bring glory to God. And his big idea is we got to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah went to Judah, and he was horrified by what he saw. The city that he'd heard all about, the temple that he'd heard all about, the walls that he heard all about, no more. When Nebuchadnezzar went to town, he destroyed, he ravaged the city. And Nehemiah, his big idea is we must rebuild the walls. And so I want you to see today two men of God who stand out above all others during this process, Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the cupbearer, and I will give you two pictures, biblical pictures, and then we're going to turn to 2015. Picture number one is this, Nehemiah the cupbearer risks everything to rebuild and restore God's holy city. And we find this account in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read a lot of scripture in Nehemiah chapter 2 and try to figure out what that means for us today. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has have found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my fathers are buried, so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, him, asked me, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. The king granted my request. Cyrus allowed the first return of the exiles. Now there's another king, Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah risks everything to say, yes, I am sad. Yes, my heart is broken. And it's broken because the holy city, the city that my granddad used to tell me about, the city that my people hold in such high esteem, it's a wreck. The walls have been devastated. The temple is in ruin. All the world looks at Jerusalem. They don't see greatness. They see a gutted, neglected place. You may say, why did Nehemiah risk it all? I mean, isn't he just having a conversation with the king? It was very rare that someone in Nehemiah's position would have the audacity to share his personal struggles and his personal heart. Kings during that day, they wanted people around them that said things like this. King, you're the greatest. King, you're awesome. King, that plan that you came up with, I'm 100% behind it. 
They didn't want to know that they just got broken up, their girlfriend just broke up with them, or they had this struggle at home, or their, their kid wasn't getting enough time on the basketball team. They didn't want to know any of that. They wanted someone that was going to do exactly what they were going to do and have a smile on their face. Nehemiah risks it all. There's a really good chance that the king could say, you're a big baby, you're a big whiner, out of here. I can get somebody else to be my cupbearer. But God uses Nehemiah and moves the heart of a king that really has no connection to the faith whatsoever to allow the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And rebuild it, they did. It was a spectacular process. The temple, after a period of neglect, is finally rebuilt. See, this first group that went back under Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., they started building the temple, and then they just, they kind of stopped. We don't really know why they stopped, but the prophet Haggai, that's another name you don't see on the rosters of, of schools today, Haggai. But Haggai is awesome, and Haggai called out to the people and said, you've come home. And you've neglected the building of God's temple. You're building your houses. You've got paneled houses. You're taking care of yourself. You're planting crops. It's time to get busy and rebuild the temple. And so after a period of several years, the temple is rebuilt. After a period of about 12 years, Nehemiah helps rebuild the city. And that brings us to the second picture that I want to show you. And this really involves Ezra the scribe, Ezra the priest. After all has been built and there is a time for a dedication I want you to see how Ezra reaffirms what matters most, and it's not a building. It's not a wall. It's not a construction project. He says what matters most is the Word of God. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Please catch this next verse, verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. Did you digest that? He read from daybreak to noon. Let's say daybreak is 6 a.m. I don't really know, but let's just go with 6 a.m. It's starting to get light at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. to noon is how long, math majors? Six hours. Six hours. Think how you feel when second service kind of goes to about 12.05, maybe 12.10. The roast is in the oven. We want to beat the Methodists to the restaurant. All, All of that. Six hours. There's more. Let's read on. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, several names of people that stood beside him. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. They're not just listening to the book of law. They are standing for, could you stand for six hours and do anything, do you think? Think about that for just a moment. When's the last time you just stood for six hours? They're standing for six hours. What if we did next week, you're going to stand during the sermon time? Would you like that? You probably wouldn't like it. You like the nice cushiony pew. For six hours they stood in reverence and listened to the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. 
There's not a lot of flashiness in there. There's a lot of do nots. There's, there, there's a lot of counting of people. And they read, Ezra read every word, and they listened, and they listened attentively. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, several names we won't pronounce this morning, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They put them into small groups. And they said, now this, this point from the book of Leviticus, that, that you're not really sure what that means, here's what that means. These are small groups taking place. Are you in a small group? Are you in a Bible school class? Are you in a women's Bible study? Do you have an opportunity where you can talk back and you can ask questions and you can better understand God's word? That's what's playing out right here. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor... Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Why were they mourning and weeping, do you think? Our Sunday school class tackled this today. And I think our conclusion was they were mourning and weeping tears of regret. When they read all the things that they were supposed to be doing, to honor the Lord their God and realize how void their lives were of such exercises, they realize that probably broke the heart of God. Something that happens when we're in the Word. You'll read the Word, and, and the Word will convict you. And maybe you won't weep, maybe you won't mourn, but you'll say, I, I, I need to do something different. My life needs to look different. What's interesting is that they are told to stop weeping. They are told to stop mourning. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites who were instructing the people said, Today is sacred to the Lord your God, so do not mourn, do not weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the word of the law. Go and enjoy choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, I love this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of of the Lord is your strength. The people were very sad. They were convicted by the reading of God's word to the point of tears. And Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites of the day said, don't be sad. Today's a celebration day. Do you realize it had been 140 years since the book of law had been read publicly? That's what happens. When you get outside God's will for your life, Israel got outside God's will for, for their, their nation, for their life. And they went through a terrible, terrible period of time. But today, it was a new day. And Nehemiah and Ezra said, there may be time to, to mourn and weep at some point, but today we celebrate. Today we rejoice. Today we renew the covenant. So what's that mean for you and me in 2015? What, what do we do with Ezra and Nehemiah and the return from exile? This period of rebuilding and reviving and renewing. What do we do with that? Well, I think that when we talk about the rebuilding and the reviving and the renewing, it should inspire followers of Jesus in 2015 to live out your faith without reservation. Too many times we live our lives as followers of Jesus with reservation. We're very reserved. We don't want to be weird. We want people to look at us and say, what's your problem? 
We've bought the lie that faith has to be a private thing. We can't ever do anything publicly with our faith because it might offend somebody else. And I couldn't disagree more. And so I want to give you six snapshots from Ezra and Nehemiah. And you can read in depth. We're not going to have time to read every scripture reference. You can read more in depth in your time. You should read in depth on your time. But hopefully it will help you as we live out our faith in 2015. Number one is this. We have to be people that will tell the truth. We have to be people that will tell the truth. Nehemiah didn't play what I like to call the fine game. He was heartbroken. And when the king Artaxerxes said, what's wrong with you? He told him what was wrong with him. And yet too many of us as followers of Jesus, we're, we're not very transparent. We're not very open. When our heart's breaking, we don't want anyone to know. I wonder, is First Christian Church of Clinton a safe place where anyone can say anything at any time and they will be loved with the love of Christ? They'll be encouraged. They'll be welcomed. I would hope that it would never be a fact of life that a bar is a safer place than a church for someone in time of need. Got to be people to tell the truth. Nehemiah told the truth, and it changed the world. It led to a great renewal for the city of Jerusalem. Number two, pray and fast. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, you see that as Nehemiah is struggling with all of this, one of the first things that he does is he reads the Word and he prays and he fasts. And you see the same thing in Ezra's life. They practiced what we would call the spiritual disciplines. During our offering time today, you're going to see a video. There's not going to be talking on it, but you're going to see pictures of our Sacred Rhythms retreat. And it's coming up at the end of the month. And for some of us, that's what we need in our life. We're too busy for it is what we might say, but we need a Friday night through Sunday morning where we can practice the spiritual disciplines. Where like Ezra, like Nehemiah, we can dive in and say, God, my life's chaotic. I was really moved by Leanne Sossman's um, testimony last week when she played the crying baby because that's so many of our lives. It's just chaos. And we say, I'm too busy to do something like that. And I wonder if you're too busy not to do a silence and solitude retreat, a sacred rhythms retreat. Maybe if you can't do that, maybe it's just you're facing something in your life, uncertainty. You're not sure about a series of events that might unfold. Maybe it's saying, once a week, I'm going to fast. And we don't even talk about fasting anymore. There's people that probably don't even know what that looks like. Here's what fasting is. Take a time that you would normally eat a meal. Wednesday lunch, Thursday supper, Friday breakfast. Don't eat... But instead of just not eating, spend that time in the Word and in prayer. Praying simply, God, reveal your life and your will to me. My guess is that would be life transforming for many of us. And it's right here, the book of Nehemiah, praying and fasting. Third, confess. Confess. Nehemiah chapter 9 is the spiritual, or the, uh, the scriptural reference for this. Following this great time of the reading of Scripture and the public renewal... The people confessed their sins. They were honest with God. They were honest with one another. And Nehemiah sets the standard. Even though he's governor, even though he is instrumental in this, he says, we will be honest and transparent, not just with one another, but with the Lord our God. We will confess. Is there something that you need to confess? You know, the really cool thing is you don't have to come confess that to me. 
You don't have to come confess that to a minister or an elder. Jesus has changed everything. He, he is the mediator now. The Bible tells us that um, 1 John 1, 9, that, that God is faithful and just. And if we confess our sins to him, he will purify us from all unrighteousness, forgive us of our sins. But I think sometimes because of that, we've fallen into what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And we're just like, yeah, yeah I'm forgiven. Yeah, yeah, I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to sweat it. It's no big deal. I'm living in grace. You know, if there's an area of your life that you're falling short, tell it to your father and make a change today. Number four, live the word. I really like this. This is a reference from, I think it's Nehemiah chapter 5, where the people were so convicted by the word, they realized that there was a real problem amongst them. There were poor amongst them that were very much in need. And so they said, it's one thing to see poor people and say, yeah, that's too bad that you're a poor person. They said, we've got to do something to help these people. And so they weren't just reading the word. They were doing what James says in chapter 1. Don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so they said, we've got to help the poor people. And they helped the poor people. And that's just one example. There's dozens of examples of where they heard the word and it transformed them. Number five, use your gifts. Um, this goes back to um, the, the, the temple project really before Ezra and Nehemiah. But Haggai in chapter one called the people together and he said, we've got to get going. You all have gifts. You all have areas where you can serve. The temple it's just started. It's just a shell. It's not what it needs to be. So use what you're gifted with to bring glory to God. Are you using what God has gifted you in, what God has gifted you with to bring glory to God? I think one challenge for lifelong followers of Jesus, people that have been in the church your whole life, I, I've been going there since the old sanctuary. I've been there a long, long time, is that you can get to a period of time where you kind of have the attitude, yeah, I've done my time. It's time for someone else. I've hung out with the little kids. I've done this and I've done that. And I don't need to do it anymore. And I realize sometimes our age can get the best of us and our physical limitations can stop us from doing what we once did. But if you're on the sidelines completely, let me challenge you, get back in the game. It's not too late to continue to be used by God in a great and mighty way. And, and the sixth thing, and you're going to say, there he goes, talking about money. You can't read the minor prophets. You can't read this account without seeing the, the priority to tithe, to give, to be passionate about giving to the Lord and to his work. Malachi was the last prophet. He's the last book in the Old Testament. It's book number 39 out of 39. And in it, he says, are you going to rob God? That's the phraseology that he uses. He says, don't bring some of the tithe. Bring the whole tithe and look and see what God will do for you, with you, and through you. And so the prophets, Haggai, Malachi, they're unashamed to say, yeah, give, give. I have a friend that's a preacher. I won't name the church. But they got ready for a six-week stewardship campaign, and several people came to him, and they said, Preacher, we just want you to know we love you, but we've heard all those giving sermons before. We've done all the stewardship campaigns before. We're going to give what we're going to give. So these six weeks that you're doing the stewardship campaign, we're going to church somewhere else. We just don't want to hear it anymore. And I kind of chuckled because I think that there's some of us, if we're being honest, maybe that's where we're at. We're not going to go to another church. 
but we're not going to engage like we would if it was a sermon on grace or a sermon on the word or a sermon on something that's less inflammatory. Prophets didn't hold back. We shouldn't hold back either. And even if you're not 100% happy with everything that's unfolding, i got to tell you, the priority of Scripture is clear. If you're a follower, you're called to give. I can't say it any more plainly than that. Those are just six snapshots that really grabbed me this week, reading through Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets. I hope they're helpful for you. What's the bottom line? Here's the bottom line. Come home. That's what this whole study today is about, chapters 19 and 21. It's all about coming home. Coming home physically and building temples and building walls and building houses and repopulating the land, but coming home spiritually. And so for some of us, our takeaway is, I need to come home. I've been away. I need to come home. For some of us, it's light the spiritual fire again. If you find yourself in a situation where you were more on fire for Jesus 20 years ago, 5 years ago, 5 months ago, 5 weeks ago, can the words of Ezra and Nehemiah inspire you to light your spiritual fire again? Next week, chapter 20 of the story, Esther and a queen who made the very most of a time such as this. Let's pray. God, thanks for today.